you know, I mean, I think that she was allowed to prepare us to survive the apocalypse, but she went deeper. You know, she didn't just teach us how to survive. She taught us how to love nature, which in the long run, I think is the best way to survive. Welcome to Nature Junkie Radio. This is a place for us to explore the wisdom, wonder, and ways of nature connection to help replenish your stoke. I'm your host, Jeff Johnson, and I hope you enjoy the ride. Hey everyone, before we get into this episode, I would love to hear how you microdose nature. If you're up for it, get out your phone and record a voice memo for about 30 seconds to a minute. Tell me your name, where you're from, describe how you microdose nature, and how it makes you feel. Just email that voice memo to hello at naturejunkielife.com. I'll read it again. Hello at naturejunkielife.com. And I'd love to share it on a future episode of the podcast, just like this one right here. Brian Westpoint here. I'm from New York. And I wanted to share how I microdose nature and how it makes me feel. Um, there are many ways that I love to microdose nature, but uh, I'll, share, I'll share two with you. Uh, one is bike riding. It makes me feel uh, very free every time, specifically the wind. I enjoy feeling the wind. And then secondly is um, outside workouts. Um, once a week, I like to get in a functional fitness or some sort of yoga, um, some sort of movement outside. And it just it makes me feel uh, inspired by the sounds, by the sights that you're able to see, you know, the unpredictableness of being outside um, and the elements as well. I hope this helps. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Brian. This makes so much sense that it made me wonder. When did we move exercise indoors? What a weird idea that was. I love how you're opening up all your senses and even inviting in a little mystery and unpredictability into your movement practice with the weather. Thanks for the share. Hope to see you soon. Now, on to the show. Today's guest is Michelle Dowd, and she grew up in a cult. If you're wondering what the hell this has to do with nature connection, you'll soon find out. Michelle is a professor of journalism at Chaffee College and a contributor to the New York Times, The Alpinist, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and other national publications. She founded the Chaffee Review, which is an award-winning literary journal. She advises student media, teaches poetry and critical thinking in the California state prisons, and has been recognized as a Long Reads Top 5 for her article on the relationship between environmentalism and hope. She also guides yoga and meditation workshops throughout Southern California. Here's why I wanted to have Michelle on the show. Even though she grew up in a religious cult, because it was in the mountains of the Angeles National Forest, she grew up deeply connected to nature. And ultimately, she ended up drawing upon everything she learned from nature perhaps most importantly, resilience to survive. This conversation with Michelle is about her new memoir called Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult. Her life then, now, and the role that Nature Connection has played throughout. One last note before we begin for the cult junkies out there. And for the record, I'm not one, but my wife is, so I'm trying to channel her and anticipate questions that might arise. In the interview and in the book, Michelle and I refer to the cult as the field, which is what insiders called it back in the day. 
Apparently, the organization has changed names several times over the years, so you have to do some creative Googling to figure it out. And if you're like my wife, you already started doing that anyway, so have fun with it. Without further ado, I bring you right. Michelle Dowd. Michelle Dowd, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. Really good to see you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Uh, I know you've been on the Whirlwind book tour. And so your book is called Forager. It's Field uh, Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult. Uh, it's an incredibly moving story of your upbringing in the mountains north of L.A., and to set some context for listeners, I would love for you to just kind of paint the picture of that upbringing. What was the cult like? What were the people like? What, were they, what was sort of the code of conduct? Paint the picture of what you grew up in, if you could. Okay. First, a caveat, which is that yeah. um, I, I think that to some degree, um, whatever rules are in a particular family can sometimes be a little culty. In my particular <laughs> family, they were very culty, but I think that um, it is the restrictions that were placed on us may be extreme, but I think that a lot of people can relate to feeling restricted in their childhood. Mm -hmm. So in, in my case, my grandfather had started a cult, although he did not call it a cult. And for the record, nobody calls what they do a cult <laughs> um, and nobody joins a cult. People join a community and they, they find something that they feel they can belong to. And then they may find out later that it is indeed a cult, or they may never find that out and devote their entire lives to something that um, tells them what to do. And that is very comforting for some people and mm. uh, maybe comforting for all of us until it's not. Right. right. So my grandfather started um, a troop in um, the late 20s uh, near LA. He was an orphan from Oklahoma and kind of came out as a teenager to, uh, I don't know, to come find out what California is about. And he was leading Boy Scout troops and they didn't let him do whatever he wanted. So he decided to branch off and run his own organization for boys. So for decades, this organization was only for boys. My mother was his fourth child, his first girl. And it wasn't until she got older, she used to play with the boys and do all the things that he thought perhaps they should have some girls at this organization. So things started branching out. I say this to um, highlight that my mother was also born into this cult. And she did not call it a cult and she died without calling it a cult. So when she raised us, she did what her father wanted her to do. And she has told me multiple, she told me multiple times um, during her life that she would never disappoint her father, even after he was long dead, that she still felt the obligation to please him. So when we had no money and we had nowhere to live and we had lost where we were living and we had been in a trailer, like, you know, sleeping every night different places on the road um, and that trailer caught on fire and burned up and everything that we had including our dog was burned up with it I was seven years old and our grandfather said that our mother could take us and her husband and live on this mountain that he had leased from the Angeles National Forest in 1947. Angeles National Forest has 700,000 acres of public land that um, sometimes um, uh, they parcel out portions of it for groups who can um, give young people opportunities. And we often call those camps. Mm -hmm. At the time, my grandfather wasn't using the particular property for much. Um, and so we moved into a mess hall, the only building on the property at the time, uh, one room, and we all stayed there together. And we hiked down to the outhouse and we um, foraged for seeds and we tried to 
ostensibly make not only a life there, but my mother had hoped to build a boarding school on the property so that the, I wouldn't really call it a retreat, but like the, the, the members of the organization could come up to the land and live there, especially the, the kids, so they could be raised not only on the land, but they could be raised isolated um, from everything else. So my life was then bifurcated into two segments, the um, field, which was the physical location of the cult where my grandfather lived with my grandmother, um, where all his sons worked, where everyone I grew up with lived and, and inhabited and imbibed that culture. And then this mountain we were on that my mother um, started really getting into the plants and the animals right from the beginning. Our father was often gone for long periods of time. Later, our mom started going with him and she would leave us alone on this mountain. And we also many times drove down the hill and stayed with our grandparents or stayed at the field. The mountain was literally leased by my grandfather. So he owned, you know, the lease of the place, but he also owned it emotionally um, in terms of deciding what was and wasn't allowable. However, it was before cell phones and we just had a landline. So we did have a telephone, but we were never allowed to use it. I never used it ever other than mm -hmm. eavesdropping. Um, but the landline was connected to other camps in the region. And I don't think that our family wanted us to know who these camps were. So we weren't allowed to, mm. you know, pick up and talk to the people on the landline. And um, so I think there was just a lack of communication. And my mother had the opportunity to secretly um, become a very renowned naturalist uh, in that area where she gave, she literally gave tours. Um, I never went on these tours, but I have met people who have. Um, and she she helped people who would come into the region to understand, and the people who lived there and the rangers to understand the actual, you know, ecosystem that we were inhabiting at the time. And, you know, when, when I, so thank you for that. That paints a good sort of broad picture and we'll get into more details, you know, but it's your memoir is a heavily emotional story. And on one hand, I, you know, part through, you know, through the book, I'm going, oh my God, she's a total badass, you know, like all the things that you learn. And at the same time, I'm going, oh my God, it's heart wrenching. Like the abuse you grew up around as well. Right. And that that's, you have to hold that through the whole book. Um, but let, I want to, I want to separate these for a moment, sort of the bright side and the shadow side, because there was there was both, right? You know, much much like any life. But you know, on the on the badass side of it, I was thinking, you know, if you kind of pay attention to modern health and wellness things these days, a lot of the things that you were learning, wellness experts push now. I mean, like some of the stuff is like that you hear on Dr. Heberman's podcast is like what you were doing, making yourself uncomfortable, or Michael Easter's comfort crisis and all this stuff. Um, or any advocates of like ancient and paleo ways of life, like you were doing, um, you know, foraging and um, even, you know, I don't know if you've ever read Richard Louv's book. He wrote this book, beautiful book about 12 or so years ago called Last Child in the Woods. And it was sort of a like, you know, hey, we're screwing our kids up by not letting them roam out in nature. So like all these things that are recommended for health and wellness you had. So let's, let's start there though. What are the, the, the good things you took away from that or that are still with you? Thank you for recognizing that. One of the reasons I chose to use the framing of the edible plants and to actually contain the story in the years that I physically lived on the mountain, that framing was because I do see that there were incredible gifts from my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to structure the book around those because I have often been told when I've talked about my past in the past, um, that it was horrific. 
And like anything, I, I mean, yes and no. I mean, a lot of it, you know, was very, I, I learned a lot about um, paying attention. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that you get when you are in the wilderness, but also anytime you're off kilter is that you are paying attention to what you need to do to stabilize yourself or find balance. And so definitely spending time in higher elevations and definitely spending time um, among nature, I consider to be the greatest gift of my childhood by far. The comfort control I consider to be um, really difficult at the time, but there is sort of a steel rod core <laughs> that I still have that just is unfazed by trauma. And there's pros and cons, I suppose, but we had um, a bomb threat that was fairly serious where they had, you know, planes that were dropping in, you know, agents and things on our campus. And people were very freaked out by that whole experience. And I, you know, I was incredibly calm, but not like just on the outside, like inside, just incredible. There was just, I, I, I feel like, oh, I prepared for this. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like my students are like, what are we going to do if we don't get food? And I said, I promise you, you will not starve. <laughs> you know, like, and I can yeah. like, really confidently say, <laughs> we are fine, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, here's what we're going to do. And like, we have this space and, and we will um, find our way within it. But I think that the, mindfulness I was taught was not in words and one of the things I needed to forage for for myself was words to explain the experiment mm -hmm. and the experiences I was having it felt like an experiment because my mom was unable to talk about it with us and I think it's because she didn't want us to talk to anyone at the field or anyone associated with our grandparents or anybody about what we were doing and so she really didn't give us the language of it and even the mm -hmm. language that she had for all the scientific names for things she did not teach us she mm. was very careful to teach us things by recognition and by common names often common names that were not as common as um, um perhaps they would have been in a school or something that was codified yeah. um, she, was, she was close friends with an indigenous man who taught her quite a bit about um you know, his tribe, which I don't know, and I need to research to find out where he came from. But I did find one of his books called Wild Foods in her mm. collection. And when she passed my nobody in the family wanted any of the books or anything. So I was able to um, not only take them home with my dad's, um, not only his permission, but his just like get them out of here, like his order, <laughs> get yeah. rid of the books, I don't want them. But I also saw all of her notes. So I was mm. able to go through and um, look at that. And she did not talk to us about her friendships that she had um, mm. at all. I did not, never, not, she died without ever admitting any of these people. We did meet occasionally someone who knew her when we were out in the wild. And I was always transfixed by that, you know, that she was close to whoever it was. Yeah. Um, and I, I asked whatever questions I could get away with and then it was shut down. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think my mother's knowledge was imparted to us nonetheless. Right. Yeah. By osmosis. Cause that, it was a secret side of her in a way, even from your dad too. Right. Yes. Like it was her, her thing that she went off and did, and it was kind of mysterious to all of you, but nonetheless, when you were around it, you were picking up on it. <laughs> it Absolutely. Seemed... And I don't think, I mean, a lot of uh, people have said, if I bring anything up, oh, she was probably having affairs or whatever. I honestly, and even she was that, that it's no bearing on this, but I genuinely do not think it had anything to do with that. It mm. was literally her love of nature that would have been, you know, I mean, I think that she was allowed to prepare us to survive the apocalypse, but she went deeper. You know, she didn't just teach us how to survive. She taught us how to love nature. 
which in the long run, I think is the best way to survive. Yeah. She was a big, uh, owl fiend as well. I think at one point in the book, you said, I think I know more about owls than humans. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We knew yeah. their sounds. And so we could imitate yeah. them, but we could also understand the sounds as they related to each other. Um, so she didn't give us the language of humans, but she did give us the language of animals and, and owls were a particular fascination for a period of time with her. And, yeah. and some else that I think were um, leaving the area, if not going extinct. And mm. she was particularly transfixed also with um, anything that was going away and trying to capture that. Mm. So um, she believed that we would go away too. And her, her understanding of the book of revelations and my grandfather's understanding of that book was that you would not know when the trumpet would sound. So you always had to be ready. Mm. And the difference between preppers is like, they think you can get ready by stockpiling and like preparing by getting enough stuff where survivalists remove everything and say, what would you do if you had nothing? Mm. And it's always about surviving when you think there's no way to survive. And so they put you in really harsh conditions without any tools to say, where could you find tools or how could you make tools? And that's a little bit like going back to being primitive in some way, because mm. we were definitely never allowed to have matches, never allowed to have a knife, not allowed to have the things that any sort of survivalist person would prepare by like packing yeah. um but it's like no because you would could be dropped in a situation where you had nothing and where could you find what you need yeah i want to come back to all that your mom your dad and those survivalist skills before that though i want to touch on one thing real quick and then get into foraging for a minute on the touch on one thing here is when you're laying the context for growing up in the field on the mountain you know can you bring to life a little bit more of the, you know, the ethos of your your grandfather and the and the religious side of it, just to make sure that we don't leave that to chance? How would you describe that? So he was a right wing fundamentalist, probably would be Christian nationalist now if he was alive. Mm -hmm. um, the organization, to whatever degree it still exists, seems very Christian nationalist to me to begin with, mm -hmm. or to end with even now. But. Um, he believed that the Bible is the word of God, but he interpreted what the Bible meant according to his particular whims at any given moment. During, um, he believed the world would end, for example, in 1977, um, related to some peace treaties between Israel and um, Egypt. And he had this whole, I mean, these things didn't happen, but he predicted they would happen. And then um, when that happened, then the trumpet would sound, and then there would be a thousand years of terror, which would reign on the earth. So he said he would live to be 500. Uh, he led me to believe that I would live throughout the whole millennium, which means a thousand years, or mm. would at least usher in the army of God during that time. And so during the time of the reign of terror, most Christians would be removed from the earth and there'd be a few of us chosen ones left who would lead the army of God. Perhaps um, the idea is that we would turn people to God, that we would help them in the last days to come to God to prevent their souls from going to hell, um, but to perhaps also um, sustain the earth just a little bit longer until God just started, decided to destroy it all, much like he did with the flood during, you know, Noah's Ark, or um, if you know the story of Jonah, when he doesn't want to warn Nineveh, and he gets eaten by a whale because mm. um, God needs to prove to him <laughs> that he is in control. Um, that's how I was raised, is that it wouldn't matter where I tried to flee, that ultimately the end of times would come, and then mm. I'd be required to um, help lead the army of God. 
Got it. Okay. That, I'm um, glad we covered that because that, <laughs> that needs to go along with the somewhat bucolic sounding mountain life. <laughs> At this point, it might seem like this cult isn't too bad, but make no mistake, it was abusive and exacted a toll on Michelle, her siblings, and many others involved. In this next part of our conversation, we'll get to know how her parents influenced her life, we'll get into the shadow side of her upbringing, and we'll understand the work and nature practices that are part of her ongoing healing journey. But first, we talk about the role foraging played in her life and in the book. And be warned, even though foraging can be great on many levels, it's serious business. If you eat the wrong thing, you can get sick or die so please don't take this part of the conversation as advice about foraging. I'm an idiot. I don't know much about it. We're just sharing Michelle's experience with it. So if you plan to forage, please do it with a wise, experienced guide. So one of the, you know, one of the narrative through lines for the book that you use as sort of an anchoring piece for the chapters is foraging for edible, you know, plants and trees and you know, I've been in the food world for a while. So it, it's when I think of foraging, I think it, it's like kind of this lost art, right? In a way, it was just how we kind of got by as humans a long time ago. But now it's kind of relegated to, you know, hipster chefs and high end eating, um, you know, and then in freegans roaming, <laughs> roaming around. But uh, it was a, a real skill that you learned along the way. And you know, I was amazed at how much of your sustenance came from just foraging in the wild around the mountain. Um, can you talk about some of those skills and that you learned and maybe about a couple of the plants that, uh, that were kind of made up day-to-day -day sustenance? One of the easiest ways to get calories in the Angeles National Forest, at least during my time, but I think this would still be the case, is pine nuts, also known as pine seeds. Mm. Um, they, that term is used interchangeably. There is no difference between a pine nut and a pine seed, um, but you get them out of pine cones. And if, you can also get them at Trader Joe's or anywhere <laughs> that sells, you know, yeah. but there's a lot of calories and a lot of um, nutritious content. And so especially if you know when in the fall to harvest them. The thing about pine nuts, I'm going to call them pine nuts. Pine yeah. nuts are that um, not only are they nutrient dense and highly caloric, you can um, store them pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And they do take a lot of time. They take a lot of physical time to pull out the kind of wings um, that they're attached to inside of pine cones. But if you are in a space that has a lot of pine cones, there's a lot of different kinds of pine nuts. Um, culture pines have larger pine nuts, which, you know, um, obviously the, the amount of work it takes, the larger the nut, the, like the more efficient it is. Mm. And so that's a wonderful way. You can also eat them raw. You do not need to cook them. Mm. And that is a really wonderful way to get sustenance um, that is available anywhere that there are pine cones yeah. all year round. Um, pollen is another um, form of nutrients that a lot of people are not aware that you can eat. And we were very careful in the book to say, I do not recommend, uh, do not listen to this as advice. Yeah. Say that for all the obvious reasons that it is not, there's like no, there's not very many pictures. There's no way for anyone to identify what they're really eating. But not mm -hmm. only that, um, most Americans for sure, probably most people on this whole globe um, are not used to eating as much roughage and they're not used to eating things raw to the extent like even people who do raw food diets can get very, you know, sick to their yeah. stomach 
if they, you know, don't take it slowly, if they don't, you know, and those are with store-bought foods. So there was a lot of stuff that we were eating. And there's also like yucca, you can do wonderful things with mm. yucca, but in our area, they are um, now, and it wasn't true, I don't think at the time, although if it had been, we wouldn't have observed it, but they are protected. So yeah. you were allowed to take yucca and you're not allowed to you know mm. use them so yeah. um, but if you know what to do with pine cones you know what to do with pollen and you know what to do with acorns you can get a lot of sustenance just off those and acorns if you all you could do really is leach them which means you can just um soak them in water or you can bake them and you can soak them and then bake them but um there's various ways to take out the the tannins and the toxins that are inherent in acorns if you just eat them raw you will get sick yeah. A lot of the um, suggestions I give with bark or other things would make most people sick if you were not accustomed to eating in that manner. Yeah. So, um, things like elderberries. Um, this is something that I think during COVID, it seemed like all of a sudden I was hearing a lot of people playing with elderberry tinctures and like um, syrups and all that yeah. stuff. Elderberries yeah. is something that was really rampant on our particular mountain and choke cherries and, um, those are really high in vitamin C and not as high in calories as you're going to get from pine nuts or from acorns, but right. a wonderful supplement to a diet and bears. Um, I mean, when you think about it, yes, you can think it's, it might be hard to forage, but bears are way larger than we are. And they go around, yeah. <laughs> you know, berries and, and these kinds of things. And it's, it's not, I think fun. If you're used to eating ding-dongs to think about sustaining yourself, <laughs> because it's just so much work um but if you live in a place that has water and has plants there's no reason you couldn't live off those for the rest of your life how did you learn the skills of there was so much in identifying the things you could eat whether it was the right season to harvest them whether or not you had to like you said leach it soak it bake it whatever to make it more edible did you learn all that from mom and mom going here do this right now even though you didn't know what you were doing like and eventually it just soaked in or what <laughs> yes we just learned by doing i didn't see any of the drawings or the books until i was probably i mean i don't even know what books she had really at the time um but i don't think i really saw anything written down probably till i was at least 15 or 16 mm. so everything prior to that just was experiential then you were just doing it yeah which is yeah. a really wonderful way to learn quite honestly yeah it's fantastic and in your case, you know, the, uh, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Like you were hungry. You, you really needed this stuff too. So let's talk about your mom or in parents a little bit. So from reading the book from your mom, you really learned the naturalist skills in a way. And from dad, it was more that kind of physical toughness and discomfort. Does that sound about right? Yes. And I think you could add that my dad taught me to be a soldier in some capacity. Mm. Well, I'll say one more thing about the bifurcation. Yeah. My father's military training was part of how he specifically trained us, like to a whistle, for example, mm -hmm. but also um, in terms of obedience. So he would ask us to move stones and boulders, you know, across across the mess hall or across um, the gully or wherever he wanted us to move them because it wasn't like a one-time thing. And then he, after we worked really, really hard, he would ask us to move them all back. And that is apparently something that is taught um, at least some boot camps. And so the idea is that you should not ask why, you should just do. Mm -hmm. And so my father just taught us the physical strength, but more importantly, the obedience of not 
asking questions and not resisting. My mother also didn't like questions, but I think she asked more questions, you know? Um, my yeah. father really truly believed that we'd be best served if we trusted and obeyed. So that was pretty much his yeah. motto, trust and obey. Yeah. You know, in thinking about your mom, in reflecting, you know, on a couple passages in the book, I, I'm going to read one line here from your mom. She said, when humans touch what is wild, we interfere with the natural order of things. Go outside, look around, but never touch wild things if you want them to thrive. On one hand, I could look at that and go, ah, oh, what a beautiful sentiment. Like, what a great way to be in nature. Like, don't mess with it, you know, <laughs> let it be wild. But, you know, in reflecting after reading the whole book and thinking about your mom and how you grew up, it's also this maybe real deep fear of intimacy on the other side of it, right? Does that sound off or not? Sounds very on. And <laughs> my mother was full of contradictions. And so if there's contradictions, yeah. I'm proud because <laughs> I wanted to capture a little bit of the, you know, really disparate information she gave us. Mm. Well, when we're talking about like leaving things wild, if we were consuming plants, she still taught us to always leave some behind because you did need to leave them mm. for the birds, you need to leave them for the bears, you needed to, like that's, those creatures still needed to thrive. And mm. she quoted um, verses from the Old Testament where every seven years, you know, things would be, you would have a year where you wouldn't touch anything and that there was a lot of, um, rules about when you went through and you got the wheat to leave some wheat behind for those who didn't have any so they could come by and glean it from behind you and that you would never you never deplete the soil you never deplete the land and that you allow um for biodiversity and she did even use that term biodiversity and she talked about ecosystems and she knew about permaculture and she never thought you should have a monoculture you know you should absolutely yeah. at all times leave so Yes, even if you're consuming, you still need to leave a, a plant wild enough. Like you wouldn't pick the whole plant and you would know how to take a little portion of the tree without damaging the tree. And she talked mm. a lot about um, what would bring in infection into a tree. But she did understand on some level mm. that um, the layers of sustenance that we are consuming were because of the networking of the plants and animals and, you know, the, the systems, the ecosystems, and that you don't when she says don't touch things she's like because those things are in her word she would say holy they're holy they're the way god intended them to be mm. and um that we are we are only one of god's creatures mm. and and even with insects as we used to complain because we get bitten a lot and and you know how some people are more prone to getting bitten by bugs or, or, or mosquitoes or things and i was one of those and okay. she would get very upset if i said well you know why did god create these and she said god did not create everything for our benefit you know, they are existing for their own benefit or for the benefit of the world. And, and humans are not at the center of the world. Mm. And I think that is a really forward way of thinking that, um, you know, I think we do talk that way sometimes now, but um, people were not, certainly people in Christian communities were not talking like that in those days. Yeah. Um, but she definitely taught me that um, we do not have the right to take just because we're hungry and we don't right. have the right to dominate just because we can. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could look at that through a religious lens like she was or just a straight sort of, you know, ecology, climate science lens. It's the same thing, really. <laughs> um, seeing the interconnectedness of everything, not fully exploiting something in a way that shuts down the system. <laughs> Let's segue a little bit. But there was a, you know, a shadow or more difficult side to this that I'm sure you're still processing on many levels, right? Especially with uh, the book. But um, let me use uh, this 
this little passage about your mom as a segue, and then I'll ask a question. So bear with me for a moment. Uh, she's, you, you said, um, her departures are becoming more frequent and they leave me with a hollowness I don't know how to fill. Parenting isn't her calling, which is tough to hear as a parent. Uh, can just however you want to go, wherever you want to go with it. But collectively, what I'd love for you to do is is summarize the the toll that growing up this way has taken, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually to capture whatever you want to call it, the, the shadow side, the more challenging parts of this upbringing as well. When my brother um, read about the book on Amazon, um, he said he started crying and I said, I didn't write the, you know, the synopsis, whatever. He said, well, it felt so true to me, um, except for it made it sound like our parents would sacrifice us if they were required to. And then he paused and he said, but they did sacrifice us. Mm. And my, my brother didn't go to college or do any of, you know, the educational route. He's had a very difficult time even communicating uh, with the family for, for large swaths of time. Um, and, but I think he captured that perfectly is that our parents really did believe that um, God would clothe the lilies of the field and God would clothe us. And it was not their job. They didn't see parenting as protection or as providing. They saw it as um, they got pregnant because they got married and um, that God brought children when God brought children. And I just don't think their definition of parenting was about protection or providing. Mm -hmm. So they did not see it as their job to give us food or to get us clothed or to make sure that we had somewhere to stay at night. So when they left, we would go around um, and there was just different seasons of this, but we often stayed at other people's houses. If we were down the hill next to the field and we would um, often, even when our parents were around, they would go up to the mountain and they would just leave us down at the field and we would sleep in a club room or we'd find somebody to stay and we would like get food. I was a dumpster diver and all that stuff that, you know, now is a little bit tr trendy, but um, <laughs> and we didn't necessarily have anywhere to go. And that is not something that I think they would have ever been ashamed of. It was just something that they felt that they were, they had a higher calling and their, their mm. job. My sister said this recently too. She said their job was to save people's souls. And so what happened to the bodies of their children was, they just trusted mm -hmm. the God. They, they were also giving us over to the collective, whatever the collective was. And they just believed we'd be cared for. And so sometimes it was many, many weeks at a time where, you know, we took care of ourselves and often in situations where we weren't all in the same place at the same time. So I think each of us would have a very, very different story about what that looked like. Mm -hmm. um, but what I can tell you for sure about my um, younger siblings is they will say, that we learned to hustle in the sense that we learned to like, you know, I think foraging is a form of hustling too, you know, it's a little different than hustle culture, but it is a form of like working hard to get what you need to survive. And um, they, my younger sister said, she said, I just never once felt loved ever growing up. Like there was no time that I felt cared for. There was no time anyone ever said to me, how are you, what do you need? I mean, that just wasn't part of the language that mm. was in our particular um, family culture. Mm. And um, all of us probably have one experience as teenagers somewhere on then where we got sick and for some reason somebody you know she tells a story of someone putting a wet cloth on her her um forehead and she just never had that happen before and so mm -hmm. it's just but again I, I think my parents just didn't see that as their responsibility mm -hmm. 
and um, that's tough sometimes when yeah. it comes to intimate relationships because I think all of us are very wary of of care don't know what it really feels like and then you're just afraid that it's going to be kind of like a one-two punch like someone's going to like try to give you something and then they're going to take it away or they're just going to leave or you know that kind of thing and it's um it was all also very very difficult for me to feel lovable um mm -hmm. growing up I didn't I certainly didn't feel lovable but I think it's something that's pretty consistently been mm -hmm. a part of my life to just feel unlovable because I feel like if I was lovable I would have been loved and um you know if you keep people at arm's length then <laughs> and they can't love you then then it's not your fault right like then yeah Ah, oh, that's so heart wrenching. I, I we have I have two boys, and we're just all and my wife we're all huggers. And I I know there was one part, you know, one line in the book that hugging was forbidden, you know. So I I could and just seeing the lack of in, intimacy with your parents as well, I could see how that would stick with you for a long time, big time. You know, obviously where you're at now. Uh, you're in a much better place. And so I have to assume you have done a lot of work and there are probably many facets to that. What what have been the cornerstones of, of the work that's helped you get to where you're at now? Obviously, you, you uh, escaped or got out of the cult. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here talking to me. But yeah, what, what have been the, the most helpful things and aspects of, of work that have led you to where you're at now? I think various somatic therapies were more useful to me than cognitive therapy, although I did mm. cognitive therapy first. I am a yoga instructor. Um, I came to yoga as an adult, a fully grown adult in my 30s, where um, I felt very unsafe in my body. I did not go to yoga for that reason, but it's where I started to discover what it felt to be in a public space and to mm. learn to feel safe. Mm. I wrote an essay on this. Um, but I, I first took yoga at a gym, LA Fitness, and I went once a week for one hour, you know, and the teacher, you know, I went because I had back pain uh, and I had a lot of lower back pain. I had a lot of children in my twenties and I felt um, just physically that I was in pain a lot. I felt physically depleted mm. a lot and I was working a lot and then doing all that. So I went to yoga for that reason. Um, but I would leave before Shavasana. I would leave before the quiet time at the end oh. and I'd take off. And I did that for at least three years. I couldn't stay once. And then, and when I did stay somewhere in the fourth year of taking yoga, I stayed for my first Shavasana. And afterwards, it was way, way worse than I thought. It was, mm. I couldn't stop crying. I, I called my mom and I was trying to talk to her about you know, some things that had happened to us. And she just said, no, I, I'm not going to talk about this. She hung up on me and she didn't talk to me for a very long time. And it was just, they were things I didn't want to think about. So I had spent a great deal of time. I hadn't really spent very much time in therapy at that point either, but I'd spent a lot of time just constantly running. I was like on a hamster wheel of like, you know, trying to, I mean, I think a lot of us do that in our twenties and our thirties, but like it was getting ahead, you know, in the, in my career and trying to be a good provider and trying to be there for my kids all the time. I had a very flexible schedule. So a lot of the other moms didn't even know I had a job because I, you know, I was able to be present for PT. I was a member of the PTA and I would go into my kids' classroom every single week and I would help out the teacher and I would do all the things. And so I never had downtime. I had no hobbies. I had, you know, and, and I, you know, my yoga practice at that time was basically like taking a prescription or something pill. Like mm. it was like, I was just trying to do something to physically stay keep being able to work to be able to like physically pick up my kids and so I mean I was done having kids before I was 30 but I felt like once my early 30s hit I was paying the price for all of it all the mm. ways that I it to my body 
Yeah. And so, um, can I can I jump in there real quick on, on one thing? What was it about Shavasana that that was would set you off or was triggering? I think it was just being in stillness and in quiet. Hmm. So, you know, people who have difficulty difficulty meditating, which I did do meditation retreats and all that a little bit later. Uh, meditating is still difficult for me, but I have worked at it long enough that I can find peace in there. But many people have difficulty listening to themselves breathe or just listening to silence because all these thoughts, and in my case, a lot of memories came into my head and I just, I couldn't sit with myself. And when I say I couldn't, I like, I could not, I, I couldn't make myself sit for 60 seconds was interminable. I couldn't do it. Mm. And now I teach meditation. Like I act, and I, I tell people, there's no way that you're as bad as I was. Like, you know, like there's nothing <laughs> wrong here. Like if you can't sit for five seconds, I'm okay with that. Here's what we're going to do that, you know, help you start to feel safe. And yeah. I, so I um, have my students spend a whole month meditating just one minute a day. Yeah. Just one minute. Because if you, and it's just the practice too, of sitting with yourself for one minute. And that can be very, very difficult for people. And so I never yeah. take that really. And every day yeah. it's a small thing. You can sit for a minute every day. You are yeah. well. Yeah, um, that's great. It's a microdose of nature right there. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, also too, I could, I'm, I have to, I can't resist the joke, which is like, oh, you think you have monkey mind? Try cult family monkey mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if yeah. I can do a minute, you've got a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we can all find it. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really enter formal practices. I mean, I was doing mm. a little bit of yoga. Um. I had, you know, some things, some tragic things happened in my thirties. I, and also even after that, but I, I had been, I got beat up by a guy who I knew just a little bit, uh, didn't know him that well, but, uh, had bones broken and stuff. And I, um, really resisted getting any sort of treatment because I was ashamed. And, um, I also didn't really know how bad it was. So I was covering my body and, and that, um, was, that's what led me to actual cognitive therapy. Um, so short version is I didn't do anything for quite a while. And I had a bone, uh, you might even see it still sticks out here, but I had a bone sticking out. Um, so I was beat up in, in a January and I didn't do anything until like late March. So it was like maybe two and a half to three months later. And one of my daughters said, um, hey, you know, I started wearing tank tops or whatever at the heat mm -hmm. camp. And she said, you might have cancer or something. There's like bones sticking out of your like your my collarbone was like <laughs> whatever. And so um, I went to the doctor, literally not even making the connection between what had happened. And she said, what kind of accident were you in? Were you in a car accident, et cetera? She did x-rays. And then she had already called a social worker because she thought I was a victim of domestic abuse. Mm. And um, so they wouldn't let me leave and they had me go somewhere and talk to a social worker who was so kind and so loving. And so, and I just started crying. I hadn't even cried since it happened. And I kept saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, and they did find out that um, they did all their due diligence and found out, you know, wasn't anybody who was still in my life and that, you know, it wasn't, I still had minor children living with me at the time. And so they wanted to make sure that, you know, no one was at risk. Yeah. But once they did that, that didn't really solve everything they really um pushed me they couldn't mandate it because it was no i hadn't done anything but mm. they did um strongly encourage me to go to therapy and so through yeah. um a, a woman who specialized in trauma she also encouraged me to um pursue somatic therapies which included um i was doing some nia dance it's called and and, and you know so I was, I was working through dance i was working in um yoga and i became a yoga instructor 
at the time. And I also um, started meditation, hmm. did all of those practices. And then eventually I would start hiking as therapy. And I think hmm. hiking quite honestly was even more important than yoga. Yoga gave me a public space at the time where I couldn't have taken the time to get off the grid. Um, it gave me a public space to find stillness and to trust the people who are around me. Mm. But hiking gave me back what I had always loved about my childhood without the fear. And um, that was an incredible gift for me mentally and psychologically. What's your relationship like with nature now? I spend time in nature every day mm. <laughs> because I, I live on, um, so my primary residence is on an acre and I live in an old grove. So there's all mm. these trees um, and, you know, they were transplanted. They're not native trees. There's a lot of citrus. Um, there's an avocado tree that may possibly be the oldest producing avocado tree in the region. Um, someone came over from Cal Poly Pomona and did some tests on it. And um, I'm not sure if this is still the case because that was a few years ago, but he thought that it was the oldest um, and it's a hundred year old tree. And so I have a I just have trees all around, but I also have always had um, all sorts of plants, not just, I know I'm not really a big traditional gardener, but when my kids were little, um, we definitely, right from the beginning, and I didn't even think about this as foraging, but we would have a rule that one day a week, we would only eat off of the land that we had here. So um, I had the kids, but we had, you know, a lot of cheats in the sense we were allowed to cook yeah. it, and we were, you know, um, but they did learn what was growing on the trees and we always had chickens so we could use their eggs mm. and um, we raised chickens always. So we, when we were eating off the land, we were also eating off of our you know, particular chickens. We did not ever kill anything, mm. uh, but we would eat of, yeah, whatever the yard produced in any given season, there would be a day of the week where we would do that. And I think that um, even now, like I feel like if you eat something that comes straight from the earth, even if you planted it, like, and it's not considered, you know, yeah. edible plant, of course it's an edible plant if you're eating it. But um, when you take something directly off of, a vine or you know pull it out of the earth and you consume it um it really connects you mm -hmm. and i try now every single day no matter what where where out of where i am to always eat something from the earth every day that's great and you others you know not to get into all the details of their lives now or your relationships but uh some of the people you were in the field with in the cult with how how are their relationships with nature? Not not everyone's has such a rosy relationship with nature nature as you do, right? Right. So I don't think anyone other than my biological siblings were raised with as much nature as we were. Well, I know nobody was because we yeah. were we were the only ones who lived on the mountain, except for the people who lived with us. But even then, my mother didn't have that same kind of control over them. They were sort of under my father's jurisdiction. Hmm. Um. But I would say that of my siblings, I certainly think I'm the most drawn to nature by far. And that um, a lot of times being in nature uh, can make them feel deprived in some mm. way. Um, that being said, my younger sister um, who, who lives on the East Coast, she has started hiking recently and um, she sends me pictures when she's hiking now. And it's beautiful to see her embracing mm. that too. And she's more of a traditional gardener, you know, in the kinds of ways that she's, she likes things to be. She told me um, just recently when she came, she flew in for my release and the book release and, and just to kind of be with me during this part. And she said that, she said, I'm just, I'm just practical. 
she said, you know, I'm a practical person who like, who, who plans things out. And she said, you were always somewhere off in your head envisioning something that could be or whatever. And she was describing it in a way I said, really? Like, even when we were kids? And she said, oh yes, like, absolutely. You were never, ever, ever like satisfied with the way things were. You always just thought about the way they could be or whatever. And um, it just makes me think that perhaps um, my particular fascination with nature has also grown in comfort because I have found ways to access it that don't feel threatening to me. Mm. That's yeah. great. What, what do you recommend for people in terms of resources or places to go or helpful things? If anyone is, you know, like in your case, you grew up in a cult. So it was just your way of being growing up. Right. But some people get influenced into cults when they're young adults or, you know, in any phase of their life. What do you, any resources you recommend to point people to for uh, bringing awareness to that and getting out if they are trying to? So I just discovered this um, since I've been asked the question uh, because I really didn't know. And I certainly wish I had known <laughs> what to do. So great mm -hmm. question. Um, there is a man named um, Dr. Stephen Hassan, mm -hmm. and you can look up his um, name, H-A-S-S-A-N, and he has a podcast. And he is, he, for decades, he has been helping deprogram people who have come out of cults. And his podcast is a free resource. He also has books. Um, there are wonderful ways to look at ways or look at the ways people have been brainwashed and you could be one of them. Um, but also he lists resources and he has the most up-to-date through his website of resources that are available in any given moment. Um, and also he used to be in a cult himself. He was a Mooney. And mm -hmm. so he really strongly identifies with how either it's not, there's nothing weak about you if you have um, found yourself under mind control. So he talks about high control groups and mind control. I'm actually um, privileged to be doing a talk. Well, not necessarily with him, but we are um, doing it on the same podcast together. Um, and I have just learned so much um, from just listening to the conversations that he has with um, people who have left cults and there are many, many of us out there. Mm. And you might, have find, you might find that you just feel that you're under some sort of pressure of mind control in general, you know somebody who is. People who are being influenced um, deeply at any given moment will not admit you. And he's wonderful at explaining mm. that. that they, will, they will not believe they're in a cult. They will resist any attempts that you have to help them. And so um, if you can get them some of these resources, they may or may not look at them, but when they're ready, um, at least they'll know where they are. Thank you for that. And uh, I also listened to to his uh, him on, he was on the Center for Humane Technologies podcast. I think it's called Undivided Attention. I'll link it in the show notes. But uh, that was before you came onto my radar. I had already listened to that. And it was really interesting. And he, you know, he breaks down the things to look for and you know, how to be prepared for them. Like, great resource as far as I could tell, but it's good to hear you say that as well. I thought so. Um, yes, so. I, I think he um, he has personal experience and he's very kind and compassionate mm. um, and understands resistance. And I think that that is so important in this mm. conversation is how much we resist believing we've been in a cult and mm. resist getting the help that any of us need and um he's very patient and compassionate with the process that it takes um for someone to unravel what is sometimes years or decades of um brainwashing so yes i strongly recommend him um, as a resource and he as i said will lead you to other resources as well it's clear that michelle has been through a lot 
It's great to hear that her relationship with nature is still strong and that it's improving for her sister as well. I'm also not surprised to hear that yoga and meditation factored into her healing process since these practices have been doing that for people for thousands of years. In this final part of our convo, we'll learn about what nature means to Michelle and how she recommends that you microdose nature. Last couple questions. Uh, and you were going there naturally, so perfect segue. Uh, how do you define nature? What is nature to you? Nature is our essence. So when we think about nature outside, it is the essence of the region. It is what is most essential to the region and what is essential will grow and it will change. Um, nature is always cyclical. Uh, and inside of us, it is what is most essential. And we are cyclical. And as we age or as we go through different seasons in our life, we, our bodies change. But like the, there's something inside that dictates and you can call it our DNA, but our DNA is nature. It is like it is it is like the blueprint of who we are mm. and across the globe there are there are blueprints the land has a blueprint and um nature is that which we allow you know mm. it's, it's like if, if you didn't dominate it what would happen um mm. what would happen to us what are we without our culture which we'll never really fully know because we are all product of culture and we won't really know what would have grown without us because the whole globe is affected by us but what is left, like what is essentially left, hmm. uh, that is nature. Cool. Thank you. I love asking this question. I, I get such a wide range of answers. I love it. Okay. How do you, what, how do you, uh, what would you recommend people do to microdose nature, or connect with nature regularly, frequently? Like what are a couple of ways you do it you might recommend for other people? I recommend you might men using all your senses. Hmm. So, um, and, and touching nature with all your senses. So the physical act of like touching plants is um, certainly one. Um, if you can hug a tree or something like really amazing about like physically putting your arms around a trunk, um, but also smelling nature, just hmm. seriously taking the time to just like, and sometimes you have to get close, especially if there is pollution in your area, you might not smell it from 10 feet away, but if you, you can smell a leaf up close, but hmm. every day, touching, smelling, looking, you know, so even if you're, you're not feeling one, well you can see it outside your window. Um, and, um, and then, um, what are our other senses hearing? Oh yeah. Listening. If you, if you put yourself somewhere where you have less of the, of the noise of culture, you can hear the birds, you can hear the leaves rustling in the wind, you know, you can, you can, you know, do all that. That's another form of touch. So you use all five of your senses to engage with nature um, in some way, nature being that which is uncorrupted by human hands um, to the best of our ability, um, putting mm -hmm. ourselves in touch with that. And I think that it helps us put in um, ourselves, I think, um, in touch with ourselves as well, because as I mentioned, I believe we truly are, like we are nature. We are not separate from nature. We have just tried to separate ourselves from nature mm -hmm. in order to have more control. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, Michelle, where would you love to send people? somewhere to buy your book probably i would love for you to uh for all of you listeners to read a forager or listen to it i actually recorded the audible so um there's audible version on audible a lot of people don't know you can try um audible for free for the first month so if you haven't tried audible and i do get i don't get a commission for this by the way i'm just recommending um but there's other places you can get the recorded version including the libraries um mm. local libraries you can listen um, and share it. If you um, are interested in having conversations, share it with your book club, or with your family and have those conversations. 
Um, you can buy it anywhere that books are sold. So Amazon has um, the audio version and the Kindle version and the hardback version. Um, but sort of independent bookstores, bookshop, depending on, um, you know, who you like to support or what's easiest for you. Um, just starting the conversation, I think, will help us all. I mean, there's lots and lots of wonderful, wonderful books on nature. Um, this sort of juxtaposes um, culture and nature, um, but I think it's a, it's a worthwhile conversation if you uh, care to have it. You can also contact me after you've read the book, and um, I will answer. Uh, Michelle at michelledown.org. Michelle, thank you for sharing your story. Thanks for spending some time uh, with us today. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having the courage to write the book and, and share your story. And uh, look forward to meeting in person at some point. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Look forward to it. Talk to you soon. Well, that was a conversation I never thought that I'd have, but I'm so glad I did. It reinforced for me how sketchy cults are and that abuse is just unacceptable. But I also came away inspired by Michelle's hearty resilience. Not everyone who goes through something like that comes out on solid ground, but Michelle has, and I'm grateful that she had the courage to share her story with us. Even though most of us listening to this didn't grow up in cults and probably won't ever be in one, hopefully not, her story delves into the messy dynamics of family relationships, searching inside ourselves to discover who we are, and also simply just trying to figure out what's safe to eat, which is something we can all relate to. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks for listening. As always, thanks for tuning in to Nature Junkie Radio. I invite you to head over to our website at naturejunkielife.com for show notes to learn more about Nature Connection and to sign up for our newsletter. And one last thing, please share how you microdose nature so I can share it with everyone in a future episode of the podcast. It's simple. Just get out your phone, record a voice memo for about 30 seconds to a minute. Tell me your first name, where you're from, describe how you microdose nature, and importantly, how does it make you feel? Just email that voice memo to hello at naturejunkielife.com. That's hello at naturejunkielife.com, and that's all it takes. Thanks so much in advance, and as always, thanks for listening to Nature Junkie Radio. Microdose nature and replenish your stoke.